Section 3 of Dogmatic Theology, Soteriology, by William G. T. Shedd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vicarious Atonement, Part 2. We find, then, that in the exercise of Christ's priestly office, the agency is wholly within the divine nature itself. The justice and the mercy, the wrath and the compassion, are qualities of one and the same eternal being it follows consequently that the explanation of the great subject of the divine reconciliation lies in the doctrine of the trinity the doctrine of vicarious atonement stands or falls with that of the triune god if god the father son and holy ghost are three distinct persons each one of them really objective to the others then one of them can do a personal work not done by the others that shall have an effect upon the godhead and if god the father son and holy ghost are also one undivided being in nature and essence then this effect whatever it be is not limited and confined to any one of the persons exclusive to the others but is experienced by the one whole undivided nature and essence itself the godhead and not merely god the father or god the son or god the spirit is reconciled to guilty man by the judicial suffering of one of the persons of the godhead incarnate the son of god is a person distinct from and objective to the father and the spirit hence he can do a work which neither of them does he becomes incarnate not they he suffers and dies for man not they and yet the efficacy of this work which is his work as a trinitarian person can terminate upon that entire divine nature which is all in god the father and all in god the spirit as it is all in god the son christ says frank experienced as a vicarious sinner both subjection to god and rejection by god but yet as one who can call the god who has rejected him his god and who while the wrath of god goes forth upon him and delivers him up to the punitive infliction nevertheless can pray not my will but thine be done before leaving the subject of vicarious atonement it is in place here to notice its relation to the soul of man for while christ's atonement has primarily this objective relation to the divine nature it has also a secondary subjective relation to the nature of the guilty creature for whom it is made the objective atonement is intended to be subjectively appropriated by the act of faith in it one in the first place the priestly work of christ has an influence upon the human conscience similar to that which it has upon the divine justice man's moral sense is pacified by christ's atonement peace is everywhere in scripture represented as the particular effect produced by faith in christ's blood therefore being justified by faith we have peace with god romans five one we are made nigh to god by the blood of christ for he is our peace ephesians two thirteen and fourteen having made peace through the blood of his cross colossians one twenty peace i leave with you my peace i give unto you john fourteen twenty seven the peace of god passeth all understanding philippians four seven the human conscience is the mirror and index of the divine attribute of justice the two are correlated what therefore god's justice demands man's conscience demands nothing says matthew henry can pacify an offended conscience but that which satisfied an offended god the peace which the believer in christ's atonement enjoys and which is promised by the redeemer to the believer is the subjective experience in man that corresponds to the objective reconciliation in god the pacification of the human conscience is the consequence of the satisfaction of the divine justice god's justice is completely satisfied for the sin of man by the death of christ this is an accomplished fact jesus christ the righteous is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world john two two the instant any individual man of this world of mankind believes that divine justice is thus satisfied his conscience is at rest the belief of a fact is always needed in order to a personal benefit from it belief is not needed in order to establish the fact whether a sinner believes that christ died for sin or not will make no difference with the fact though it will make a vast difference with him if we believe not yet he abideth faithful he cannot deny himself two timothy two thirteen unbelief cannot destroy a fact should not a soul henceforth believe on the son of god it would nevertheless be a fact that he died an atoning death on calvary and that this death is an ample oblation for the sin of the world but it must be remembered that the kind of belief by which a man obtains a personal benefit from the fact of christ's death is experimental not historical or hearsay 
a man may believe for common rumour that the death of christ satisfies divine justice for the sin of the world and yet experience no benefit and no peace from his belief even as a blind man may believe from common rumour that there is a mountain in front of him and yet have none of the pleasing sensations and personal benefits that accompany the vision of it the blind man may have no doubt of the fact that there is a mountain before him he may even argue to prove its existence and still have all the wretched sensations of blindness and obtain no personal advantage from his hearsay belief and a sinful man may have no sceptical doubt that the death of christ on mount calvary has completely expiated human guilt and may even construct a strong argument in proof of the fact and still have all the miserable experience of an unforgiven sinner may still have remorse and the fear of death and the damnation of hell the belief by which men obtain personal benefit namely mental peace and blessedness from the fact of christ's atonement involves trust and reliance upon christ a man may believe christ and yet not believe on him christ himself marks the difference between historical or hearsay belief and experimental faith in matthew thirteen thirteen to fifteen seeing they see not and hearing they hear not neither do they understand in them is fulfilled the prophecy of isaiah which saith by hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive whenever there is an experimental belief of the actual and accomplished fact of christ's atonement there is a subjective pacification of the conscience corresponding to the objective reconciliation of the divine justice but this subjective effect of christ's death is neither the primary nor the whole effect of it it presupposes the objective satisfaction or propitiation in this instance as in all others the object is prior to the subject and determines its consciousness two secondly the subjective appropriation of christ's atonement is the evidence and test of genuine repentance an unselfish godly sorrow for sin is shown by a willingness to suffer personally for sin in leviticus twenty six forty one and forty three the truly penitent are described as accepting the punishment of their iniquity the criminal who complains of punishment or resists it or endeavours to escape from it evinces by this fact that he cares more for his own happiness than he does for the evil and wickedness of his act if he were certain of not being punished he would repeat his transgression there is of course no genuine sorrow for sin in such a temper if on the contrary a wrongdoer approves of and accepts the punishment denounced against his crime and voluntarily gives himself up to suffer for his transgression he furnishes the highest proof of true sorrow he does not make his own happiness the first thing but the maintenance of justice with angelo he says so deep sticks it in my penitent heart that i crave death more willingly than mercy tis my deserving and i do entreat it with the penitent thief he says we are in this condemnation justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds luke twenty three forty one no one can deny says dorner that true penitence includes the candid acknowledgment of actual desert of punishment and that the denial of this desert and the unwillingness to suffer punishment and to surrender to the disgrace of justice is the most certain proof of a mere semblance of penitence and it is not essentially different when repentance and the resolution to live a better life are put in the place of that suffering which constitutes satisfying atonement and gives a title to remission of sin such views are a poisoning of penitence which in order to be genuine must stand the test of being ready to suffer punishment and approve of the retribution of justice the first impulse consequently of true penitence is to make a personal atonement this distinguishes penitence from remorse a godly sorrow from the sorrow of the world two corinthians seven ten mere remorse has no desire or impulse to suffer and make amends for what has been done its impulse and desire is wholly selfish namely to escape suffering remorse leads to suicide penitence never the suicide's motive is to put an end to his misery he supposes that he will be happier by dying than by continuing to live this was the motive of the impenitent judas footnote suicide if the act of sanity is ipso facto proof of insubmission and rebellion towards god and impenitence in sin socrates contends that to take one's own life is to defraud and dishonour the creator the gods he says are our guardians and we are a possession of theirs if one of your own possessions an ox or an ass for example took the liberty of putting himself out of the way when you had given no intimation of your wish that he should die would you not be displeased with him and would you not punish him if you could 
it was upon this view of suicide that the self-murderer was denied burial by the church in consecrated ground End footnote. but the broken and contrite heart is willing to do and to suffer anything that would really satisfy god's holy law this is taught in psalm fifty one sixteen david in his genuine sorrow for his great transgression says thou desirest not sacrifice else i would give it he perceives that any expiation which he could make for his sin would be unequal to what justice requires but this does not render him any the less ready to make it if he could and when the true penitent perceives that another competent person divinely appointed has performed that atoning work for him which he is unable to perform for himself he welcomes the substitution with joy and gratitude any aversion therefore to christ's vicarious atonement evinces that there is a defect in the supposed sorrow for sin the lust of self is in the experience the individual's happiness is in the foreground and the divine holiness is in the background and the positive and deliberate rejection of christ's atonement upon the same principle is absolute and utter impenitence a hostile and polemic attitude towards the blood of christ as atoning for human guilt is fatal hardness of heart christ refers to it in his awful words to the pharisees if ye believe not that i am he ye shall die in your sins john eight twenty four impenitence shows itself both in unwillingness to make a personal atonement for sin and to trust in a vicarious atonement for it it becomes necessary now to consider the question how does the suffering of christ meet the requisitions involved in the case of substitution of penalty or vicarious atonement we have seen that suffering is the inmost essence of an atonement the sacrificial victim must agonize and die without shedding of blood there is no remission of penalty even in cases where physical suffering does not take place a suffering of another kind does a citizen within the province of civil law is said to make amends for his fault when he pays a fine and suffers a loss of money as the compensation to civil justice what then is suffering suffering is of three kinds one calamity two chastisement three punishment or penalty one calamity does not refer to sin and guilt it is a kind of suffering that befalls man by the providence of god for other reasons than disciplinary or judicial calamitous suffering however it should be noticed occurs only in a sinful world consequently it is never found isolated and by itself alone it is associated either with chastisement as when a calamity falls upon a child of god or with punishment as when it falls upon the impenitent sinner calamity is therefore rather an element in suffering than the whole of the suffering when for illustration some of the galileans had been cruelly put to death by herod luke thirteen one to five our lord distinctly told those who informed him of this fact that these galileans were not sinners above all the galileans because they suffered such things they were sinners but not the worst of sinners in other words he taught them that the whole of this suffering was not penal as sinners they deserved to suffer and some of this suffering was for their sins but as they were not greater sinners than other galileans they did not deserve a suffering that was so much greater than that of the galilean people as a whole a part of this extraordinary suffering therefore was calamity not punishment as such it had no reference to the guilt of the galileans if it had it would have been a proof that they were sinners above all the galileans our lord then repeats and emphasizes the same truth by an allusion to the fall of the tower in siloam upon some of the inhabitants of jerusalem this event did not prove that those few persons were sinners above all men that dwelt in jerusalem there was therefore a calamitous as well as a penal element in this fall of the tower the same doctrine is taught by the extraordinary sufferings of the patriarch job job's friends contended that these were all and wholly penal they inferred that job had been guilty of some extraordinary sin which merited this extraordinary punishment and they urged him to confess it the patriarch though acknowledging himself to be a sinner and deserving to suffer for sin job forty two five and six was not conscious of any such extraordinary act of transgression as his friends supposed he must have committed and cannot understand why he should have been visited with such enormous afflictions both he and they are finally informed by god himself out of the whirlwind that the extraordinariness of the suffering is due to the will of god that it is of the nature of calamity not of penalty jehovah resolves the mystery in the uncommon treatment of job into an act of almighty power by an infinitely wise being who gives no reason for his procedure in this instance job chapters thirty eight to forty one 
Elihu, the youngest of the speakers, seems to have had an intimation in his own mind that this was the true explanation of the dark problem. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Job 33, 12 and 13. 2. The second species of suffering is chastisement. This is spoken of in Hebrews 12, 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chastiseth. Pervevi treats like a child. Chastisement and punishment are distinguished from each other in 1 Corinthians 11.32. When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. The purpose of chastisement is discipline and moral improvement. The reason for it is not secret and unknown, as in the case of calamity. It is adapted to reform. It is administered by paternal affection, not by judicial severity. It is the form which suffering assumes within the family. The parent does not cause the child to feel pain for the satisfaction of justice, but for personal improvement. The suffering does indeed remind the child of his guilt and is suggestive of penalty, but it is not itself penal. Family discipline is not of the nature of retribution. Hence analogies drawn from the family do not apply to the civil government, and still less to the divine government, when guilt and retribution are the subjects under consideration guilt and retribution are not arestomi they are not family affairs the family was not established for the purpose of punishing criminals but of educating children because a human father may forgive a child that is may forego the infliction of suffering for an offence without any satisfaction being rendered for him by a substitute and without any reference to the claims of law it does not follow that the state can do this or that the supreme ruler can within the sphere of family life there is nothing judicial and retributive there is therefore no analogy between the two spheres there can be no legitimate arguing from a sphere in which the retributive element is altogether excluded such as that of the father and the child over into a sphere in which the retributive is the prime element such as that of god the just and man the guilty it is metavasis is allogenos a parent is at liberty in case he judges that in a particular instance the child will be morally the better for so doing to forego chastisement altogether he can pass by the transgression without inflicting any pain at all upon the child but the magistrate has no right to do this in the instance of crime against the state he must cause each and every transgression to receive the penalty prescribed by the statute furthermore since chastisement has no reference to crime it is not graduated by justice and the degree of the offence but by expediency and the aim to reform sometimes a small fault in a child may be chastised with a severe infliction and a great fault with a mild one the object not being to weigh out penalty in exact proportion to crime but to discipline and reform the character the amount of suffering inflicted is measured by this aim and object a very slight offence if there is a tendency frequently to repeat it on the part of the child may require a heavy chastisement so that the habit may be broken up and on the other hand a very grave offence which is exceptional in its nature and to which there is no habitual tendency on the part of the child may be best managed with a slight infliction of pain or even with none at all a rebuke merely may be better adapted to promote the reformation of the offender all this is illustrated in god's dealings with his own children a christian of uncommon excellence to human view sometimes experiences a great affliction while one of less devoutness apparently is only slightly afflicted or perhaps not at all this difference is not caused by the degree of demerit in each instance but by what the divine eye sees to be required in each case in order to the best development of character now the relation of a believer to god is like that of the child to the earthly father man enters into god's heavenly family by the act of faith in christ all the suffering that befalls him in this sphere is therefore of the nature of chastisement not of punishment or retribution it is not intrinsically endless and hopeless as divine retribution is i will visit their transgression with the rod nevertheless my loving-kindness i will not utterly take from him he will not always chide neither will he keep his anger for ever psalm eighty nine thirty one thirty four a hundred three nine jeremiah ten twenty four the penalty due to the believer's sin has been endured for him by his redeemer and therefore there is no need of his enduring it justice does not exact penalty twice over 
consequently whenever the believer suffers pain from any cause or source whatever he is not suffering retributive punishment for purposes of law and justice but corrective chastisement for purposes of self-discipline and spiritual improvement epito sumferon hebrews twelve ten this suffering though for the present moment not joyous but grievous yet after it has been submissively endured works out the peaceable fruit of righteousness hebrews twelve eleven even death itself which is the climax of suffering is not penal for a believer its sting that is its retributive quality is extracted one corinthians fifteen fifty five and fifty six suffering is penal when it is intended and felt to be such and is chastisement when it is not so intended and felt god intends a benefit not a punishment when he causes a believer in christ to suffer the pains of disillusion and the believer so understands it he feels that it is fatherly discipline when a penitent believer dies god supports and comforts the departing soul but when an impenitent unbeliever dies the soul is left to itself without support and comfort from god the tranquillizing presence of god converts death into chastisement the absence of such a presence makes it penalty the relation of a rebellious and unbelieving man to god is like that of a rebellious citizen to the state all that such a citizen can expect from the government under which he lives is justice the due reward of his disobedience the state is not the family and what is peculiar to the one is not to the other the disobedient citizen cannot expect from the magistrate the patient forbearance and affectionate tuition which the disobedient child meets with from a parent with a view to his discipline and moral improvement the citizen is entitled only to justice and if he gets it in the form of the righteous punishment of his crime he must be silent no man may complain of justice or quarrel with it to do so is an absurdity as well as a fault by creation man was within the circle both of the divine government and the divine family holy adam was at once a subject and a child by apostasy and rebellion he threw himself out of the circle of god's family but not out of the circle of god's government sinful man is invited and even commanded to re-enter the divine family when he is invited and commanded to believe on the lord jesus christ for the remission of his sins but so long as he is an unbeliever he has not re-entered it and is not an affectionate or dear child of god the phraseology in jeremiah thirty one twenty ephraim is my dear son in ephesians five one be ye followers of god as dear children in Romans eight sixteen and 17, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. In Galatians three twenty six, ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And in Matthew 5, 9, the peacemakers shall be called the children of God. This and the like phraseology is not applicable to men indiscriminately, but only to believers. The childhood and the fatherhood in this case is special because it is founded in redemption there is a providential fatherhood and childhood spoken of in scripture which is not sufficient to constitute fallen man a member of god's heavenly family in acts seventeen twenty eight all men are called the offspring of god and in malachi two ten the question is asked have we not all one father this providential fatherhood and childhood is founded in creation this is proved by a second question in malachi two ten which follows the one already cited and explains it hath not one god created us and in acts seventeen twenty six the reason given why all nations are the offspring of god is that they are made of one blood by their creator creation is a kind of paternity in job thirty eight twenty eight and twenty nine this is extended even to the inanimate creation hath the rain a father or who hath begotten the drops of the dew out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven who hath gendered it in deuteronomy two twenty seven idolatrous israel is represented as saying to a stock thou art my father and to a stone thou hast brought me forth in acknowledging a false god to be their maker they acknowledged him to be their providential father in accordance with this god says to a wicked generation whose spot is not the spot of his children who are not dear children in the special sense do ye thus requite the lord o foolish people and unwise is he not thy father that bought thee hath he not made thee and established thee deuteronomy thirty two six our lord matthew seven eleven teaches that evil men have a father in heaven and explains this fatherhood by god's readiness to bestow good things in his general providence this association of paternity with creation and providence is found also in secular literature plato says that to discover the creator and father of this universe is indeed difficult horace speaks of the father of all who governs the affairs of men and gods 
creation together with providence and government which are necessarily associated with creation is a solid basis for this kind of paternity it implies benevolent care and kindness towards its objects and these are paternal qualities god's providential and governmental goodness towards all his rational creatures is often referred to in scripture matthew five forty five your father which is in heaven maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good and sendeth rain upon the just and the unjust acts fourteen seventeen he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness the fact then that god creates man after his own image a rational and immortal being that he continually upholds him and extends to him the blessings of a kind and watchful providence and still more that he compassionates him in his sinful and guilty condition and provides for him a way of salvation all this justifies the use of the term father in reference to god and the term child in reference to man but the fatherhood and childhood in this case are different from those of redemption and adoption the former may exist without the latter god as the universal parent while showing providential benevolence and kindness to an impenitent sinner filling his mouth with food and gladness all the days of his earthly existence may finally punish him for ever for his ungrateful abuse of paternal goodness and for his transgression of moral law and especially for his rejection of the offer of forgiveness in christ and this lost man is still even in his lost condition one of god's offspring abraham speaking in the place of god calls dives in hell a child of the universal parent son remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things luke sixteen twenty five and dives recognizes the relationship when he says father abraham have mercy on me luke sixteen twenty four the providential fatherhood of god is thus shown to be consistent with the punishment of a rebellious son it is also consistent with the refusal to abate the merited punishment dives asks for a drop of water to cool his tongue and is refused dives was an impenitent man he did not confess his sin or implore its forgiveness he only asked for deliverance from suffering he lacked the spirit of the prodigal son and of the penitent thief he did not say father i have sinned and am no more worthy to be called thy son make me as one of thy hired servants i am in this condemnation justly i am receiving the due reward of my deeds the universal fatherhood and childhood may exist without the special but not the special without the universal there may be creation providence and government without redemption but not redemption without the former a man may experience all the blessings of god's general paternity without those of his special but not the blessings of god's special fatherhood without those of his general christ speaks of those who are not god's children in the special sense when he says in reply to the assertion of the jews we have one father even god if god were your father you would love me ye are of your father the devil john eight forty one to forty four st john refers to the same class in the words in this the children of god are manifest and the children of the devil one john three ten when men universally are commanded to say our father which art in heaven they are commanded to do so with the heart not the lips merely they have no permission to employ the terms of the family from the position of a rebel says christ why call ye me lord lord and do not the things which i say luke six forty six in like manner god says a son honoureth his father if i be a father where is mine honour malachi one six the fact of the providential fatherhood as previously remarked is not sufficient to constitute fallen men members of god's heavenly family unfallen man was a member of the heavenly family merely by the fatherhood of creation and providence but after his rebellion and apostasy this ceased to be the case redemption was needed in order to restore him to membership the whole human family are not now god's heavenly family only a part of it are the dear children of god those only are members of god's family who are members of christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth the church above and below is named ephesians three fifteen all others are bastards and not sons hebrews twelve eight three the third species of suffering is punishment this is pain inflicted because of guilt the intention of it is the satisfaction of justice retributive justice is expressed in the saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth this is the lex talionis or law of requital our lord in the sermon on the mount did not abolish this law but placed its execution upon the proper basis that which was addressed to the judges says calvin private individuals applied to themselves and it was this abuse which our lord jesus christ would correct the private person may not put out the eye of him who has put out an eye but the government may 
retribution is not the function of the individual it belongs to god and to the government which is ordained of god dearly beloved avenge not yourselves for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay saith the lord romans twelve nineteen this retributive function is delegated by god to the magistrate for he is the minister of god an avenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil romans thirteen four when the private individual takes the lex talionis into his own hands it is revenge christ forbade this when god or the government administers it it is vengeance christ did not forbid this the former is selfish and wrong the latter is dispassionate and right that particular amount and kind of suffering which is required by the law of requital is punishment its primary aim is the satisfaction of justice not utility to the criminal the criminal is sacrificed to justice his private interest is subservient to that of law and government because the latter is of more importance than the former even if he derives no personal benefit from the retribution which he experiences the one sufficient reason for it still holds good namely that he has voluntarily transgressed and deserves to suffer for it both the quantity and the quality of the suffering must be considered in order to penalty a in the first place the amount of the suffering must be proportionate to the offence to take human life for a petty larceny would be unjust to take money as an offset for murder would be unjust b in the second place suffering must be intended as penal and felt to be penal in order to be penal it must have this retributive quality two men might suffer from god precisely the same amount of suffering and in one case it might be retribution and in the other chastisement because in the one case his intention was the satisfaction of law in the other the correction of his child physical death in the case of a wicked man is penal evil because it is designed as a punishment on the part of god and is felt to be such by the man god grants no comfort to the wicked in his death the sting is not extracted and death is remorseful and punitive but the very same event of death and the same suffering in amount is chastisement and not punishment for a believer because it is accompanied with inward strength from god to endure it and is known to be the means of entrance into heaven the sufferings of christ the mediator were vicariously penal or atoning because the intention both on the part of the father and the son was that they should satisfy justice for the sin of man they were not calamity for their object is known the reason for calamitous suffering is secret and they were not disciplinary because christ having no sin could not pass through a process of progressive sanctification scripture plainly teaches that our lord's sufferings were vicariously retributive that is that they were endured for the purpose of satisfying justice in the place of the actual transgressor one peter three eighteen christ hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust galatians three thirteen christ was made a curse for us isaiah fifty three five emmanuel was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities romans four twenty five jesus our lord was delivered for our offences two corinthians five twenty one he hath made him to be sin a sin offering for us who knew no sin one john two two he is the propitiation for our sins john one twenty nine behold the lamb of god which taketh away the sins of the world romans eight thirty two he spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all with this compare two peter two four he spared not the angels that sin but cast them down to hell penalty in the case of christ was vicarious in that of the fallen angels was personal the penal and atoning sufferings of christ were twofold a ordinary b extraordinary the first came upon him by virtue of his human nature he hungered thirsted was weary in body was sad and grieved in mind by the operation of the natural laws of matter and mind all that christ endured by virtue of his being born of a woman being made under the law living a human life and dying a violent death belongs to this class the extraordinary sufferings in christ's experience came upon him by virtue of a positive act and infliction on the part of god to these belong also all those temptations by satan which exceeded in their force the common temptations incident to ordinary human life through these christ was caused to suffer more severely than any of his disciples have and that this was an intentional and preconceived infliction on the part of god for the purpose of causing the sinner's substitute to endure a judicial suffering is proved by the statement that jesus was led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil matthew four one these severe temptations from satan occurred more than once the devil departed from him for a season luke four thirteen but still more extraordinary was that suffering which was caused in the soul of christ by the immediate agency of god in the garden and on the cross 
that agony which forced the blood through the pores of the skin and wrung from the patient and mighty heart of the god-man the cry my god why hast thou forsaken me cannot be explained by the operation of natural laws there was positive desertion and infliction on the part of god the human nature was forsaken as the words of christ imply that support and comfort which the humanity had enjoyed in greater or less degree during the life of the god-man upon earth was now withdrawn utterly and entirely one consequence of this was that the physical suffering involved in the crucifixion was unmitigated christ had no such support as his confessors have always had in the hour of martyrdom but this was the least severe part of christ's extraordinary suffering the pain from the death of crucifixion was physical only there was over and above this a mental distress that was far greater this is indicated in the terms employed to describe the spiritual condition of christ's soul in the so-called agony in the garden he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and saith unto them my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death mark fourteen thirty three and thirty four the words eclamviste and ademonin imply a species of mental distress that stuns and bewilders this mental suffering cannot be explained upon ordinary psychological principles but must be referred to a positive act of god christ was sinless and perfect his inward distress did not result from the workings of a guilty conscience the agony in the garden and on the cross was not that of remorse though it was equal to it neither was it the agony of despair though it was equal to it footnote christ felt that he was forsaken of god but not like a despairing person that he was eternally forsaken the desertion was only temporary the comforting presence of god returns to christ as is indicated in the statement of luke twenty three forty six that jesus cried with a loud voice saying father into thy hands i commend my spirit again the agony of christ was not despair because in this very cry he says my god a despairing man or angel would say o god and would not expostulate saying why hast thou forsaken me again christ did not experience despair because he knew that the union between the divine and human natures was indissoluble he also knew that the covenant of redemption between him and the father could not fail his distress did not relate to either of these two particulars it arose a from his view of the nature of the curse upon sin which he had vicariously come under b because the comforting influences from the union of the divine with the human nature were temporarily restrained c from the temporary desertion of god d from positive infliction when the sword was awakened against him owen third sacramental discourse the words why hast thou forsaken me express wonder not ignorance or unbelief or complaint christ well knew why he was deserted at this hour had perfect faith and confidence in his father and was entirely submissive to his will but he was amazed and paralyzed at the immensity of the agony why is not interrogative but exclamatory the words are equivalent to how thou hast forsaken me this is hughes and victor's explanation see hooker five forty eight when a christian exclaims why am i so unbelieving and sinful it is only another way of saying how unbelieving and sinful i am he is not asking for information he well knows the reason why in footnote the positive agency of god in causing a particular kind of suffering to befall the mediator which could not have befallen him by the operation of natural causes is spoken of in isaiah fifty three five six and ten he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all it pleased the lord to bruise him and again in zechariah thirteen seven awake o sword against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow saith the lord of hosts smite the shepherd this language teaches that the incarnate second person of the trinity received upon himself a stroke inflicted by the positive act of another divine person the son of god was bruised wounded and smitten by god the father as the officer and agent of divine justice and the effects of it appear in that extraordinary mental distress which the mediator exhibited particularly during the last hours of his earthly life while he was buffeted scourged and nailed to the cross we hear nothing from him but like a lamb before the shearers he was dumb but when god reached forth his hand and darted his immediate rebukes into his very soul and spirit then he cries out my god my god why hast thou forsaken me the nature of this suffering is inexplicable because it has no parallel in human consciousness the other forms of christ's suffering are intelligible because they were like those of men 
thirst, hunger, weariness, grief at the death of a friend, were the same in Christ that they are in us, but that strange and unique experience which uttered itself in the cry, My God, why hast thou forsaken me, belongs to the consciousness of the God-man. Only he who occupied the actual position of the sinner's substitute can experience such a judicial stroke from eternal justice, and only he can know the peculiarity of the suffering which it produces. Suffering is a form of consciousness, and consciousness can be known only by the possessor of it. There are some particulars respecting this positive infliction upon the Messiah which must be carefully noted. 1. Though the father smote, wounded, and bruised the son, he felt no emotional anger towards the person of the son. The emotional wrath of God is revealed only against personal unrighteousness, and Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. The father smote his beloved son, in whom he was well pleased. Matthew 3.17 at the very instant when the father forsook the son he loved him emotionally and personally with the same infinite affection with which he had loved him before the world was when it is said that christ experienced the wrath of god the meaning is that he experienced a judicial suffering caused by god the wrath of god in this instance is not a divine emotion but a divine act by which god the father caused pain in jesus christ for a particular purpose this purpose is judicial and penal and therefore the act may be called an act of wrath Ira dei est voluntas puniendi, Anselm, cua Deus homo, 1, 6. In Romans 13, 4, the infliction of suffering by the magistrate upon the criminal is denominated an act of wrath. He is the minister of wrath. But the magistrate has no emotional anger towards the criminal. God the Father could love the Son, therefore, at the very instant when he visited him with this punitive act. His emotion might be love while his act was wrath nay his love might be drawn forth by this very willingness of the son to suffer vicariously for the salvation of man we do not admit says calvin that god was ever hostile or emotionally angry with him for how could he be angry with his beloved son in whom his soul delighted or how could christ by his intercession appease the father for others if the father were incensed against him but we affirm that he sustained the weight of the divine severity since being smitten and afflicted of god he experienced from god all the tokens of wrath and vengeance says witsius to be the beloved son of god and at the same time to suffer the wrath of god are not such contrary things as that they cannot stand together for as son as the holy one while obeying the father in all things he was always the beloved and indeed most of all when obedient to the death of the cross for that was so pleasing to the father that on account of it he raised him to the highest pitch of exaltation philippians two nine though as charged with our sins he felt the wrath of god burning not against himself but against our sins which he took upon himself two secondly the son of god understands the judicial infliction which he undergoes in this sense god the son knows that the blow which he experienced from god the father is not for sin which he has himself committed the transaction between the two divine persons is of the nature of a covenant between them. The Son agrees to submit his person, incarnate, to a penal infliction that is required by the attribute of justice, but this attribute is as much an attribute of the Son as it is of the Father. The second Trinitarian person is as much concerned for the maintenance of law as is the first. The Son of God is not seized, an unwilling victim, and offered to justice by the Father. The Son himself is willing and desires to suffer. I have, he says, a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straitened till it be accomplished. Luke 12.70 This explains the fact that Christ everywhere represents himself as voluntarily giving up his life. No man taketh my life from me, I lay it down of myself. John 10.18 in some instances he employs his miraculous power to prevent his life from being taken because his hour was not yet come but when the hour had come though in the full consciousness that twelve legions of angels were at his command he suffers himself to be seized by a handful of men to be bound and to be nailed to a cross so far as the feature of mere voluntariness is concerned no suicide was ever more voluntary in the manner of his death than was jesus christ a distinction is made between Christ's active and passive obedience. The latter denotes Christ's sufferings of every kind, the sum total of the sorrow and pain which he endured in his estate of humiliation. The term passive is used etymologically. His suffering is denominated obedience, because it came by reason of his submission to the conditions under which he voluntarily placed himself when he consented to be the sinner's substitute. He vicariously submitted to the sentence, 
the soul that sinneth it shall die, and was obedient unto death, Philippians 2.8. Christ's passive or suffering obedience is not to be confined to what he experienced in the garden and on the cross. This suffering was the culmination of his piacular sorrow, but not the whole of it. Everything in his human and earthly career that was distressing belongs to his passive obedience. It is a true remark of Edwards that the blood of Christ's circumcision was as really a part of his vicarious atonement as the blood that flowed from his pierced side, and not only his suffering proper but his humiliation also was expiatory, because this was a kind of suffering. Says Edwards, the satisfaction or propitiation of Christ consists either in his suffering evil or his being subject to abasement. Thus Christ made satisfaction for sin by continuing under the power of death while he lay buried in the grave, though neither his body nor soul properly endured any suffering after he was dead. Whatever Christ was subject to that was the judicial fruit of sin had the nature of satisfaction for sin but not only proper suffering but all abasement and depression of the state and circumstances of mankind human nature below its primitive honour and dignity such as his body remaining under death and body and soul remaining separate and other things that might be mentioned are the judicial fruits of sin christ's active obedience is his perfect performance of the requirements of the moral law he obeyed this law in heart and in conduct without a single slip or failure he was wholly harmless and undefiled hebrews seven twenty six some theologians confine christ's atonement to his passive obedience in such sense that his active obedience does not enter into it and make a part of it footnote piscata was the first formally to present this view john taylor of norwich went to an opposite extreme and held that the active obedience was the sole cause of man's salvation he denied any piacular effect of christ's death and held that as a reward of christ's active obedience alone the remission of sin was given to man as the eminent services of a soldier are rewarded by the monarch by benefits to his family End footnote. since atonement consists in suffering and since obedience to the divine law is not suffering but happiness they contend that christ's active obedience cannot contribute anything that is strictly piacular or atoning this would be true in reference to the active obedience of a mere creature but not in reference to the active obedience of the god-man it is no humiliation for a created being to be a citizen of the divine government to be made under the law and to be required to obey it but it is humiliation for the son of god to be so made and to be so required to obey it is stooping down when the ruler of the universe becomes a subject and renders obedience to a superior in so far as christ's active obedience was an element in his humiliation it was an element also in his expiation consequently we must say that both the active and the passive obedience enter into the sum total of christ's atoning work christ's humiliation confessedly was atoning and his obedience of the law was a part of his humiliation the two forms of christ's obedience cannot therefore be so entirely separated from each other as is implied in this theory which confines the piacular agency of the mediator to his passive obedience but while there is this atoning element in christ's active obedience it is yet true that the principal reference of the active obedience is to the law as precept rather than to the law as penalty it is more meritorious of reward than it is piacular of guilt the chief function of christ's obedience of the moral law is to earn a title for the believer to the rewards of heaven this part of christ's agency is necessary because merely to atone for past transgression would not be a complete salvation it would indeed save man from hell but it would not introduce him into heaven he would be delivered from the law's punishment but would not be entitled to the law's reward the man which doeth the things of the law shall live by them romans ten five mere innocence is not entitled to a reward obedience is requisite in order to this adam was not meritorious until he had obeyed the commandment do this before he could enter into life he must keep the commandment like every subject of the divine government and candidate for heavenly reward the mediator therefore must not only suffer for man but must obey for him if he would do for man everything that the law requires accordingly christ is said to be made of god unto the believer wisdom and sanctification as well as righteousness and redemption one corinthians one thirty believers are described as complete in christ colossians one ten that is they are entitled to eternal blessedness as well as delivered from eternal misery christ is said to be the end delos of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth romans ten four 
this means that christ completely fulfills the law for the believer but the law requires obedience to its precept as well as endurance of its penalty complete righteousness is conformity to the law in both respects romans five nineteen by his obedience shall many be made righteous isaiah fifty three eleven by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many jeremiah twenty three six the lord our righteousness jeremiah forty five twenty four in the lord have i righteousness romans eight four philippians three nine two corinthians five twenty one the imputation of christ's active obedience is necessary also in order to hope and confidence respecting the endless future if the believer founds his expectation of an eternity of blessedness upon the amount of obedience which he has himself rendered to the law and the degree of holiness which he has personally attained here upon earth he is filled with doubt and fear respecting the final recompense he knows that he has not by his own work earned and merited such an infinite reward as glory honour and immortality we cannot by our best works merit eternal life at the hand of god by reason of the great disproportion between them and the glory to come westminster confession sixteen five but if he founds this title to eternal life and his expectation of it upon the obedience of christ for him his anxiety disappears a distinction is made by some theologians between satisfaction and atonement christ's satisfaction is his fulfilling the law both as precept and penalty christ's atonement as antithetic to satisfaction includes only what christ does to fulfil the law as penalty according to this distinction christ's atonement would be a part of his satisfaction the objections to this mode of distinguishing are a satisfaction is better fitted to denote christ's piacular work than his whole work of redemption in theological literature it is more commonly the synonym of atonement b by this distinction atonement may be made to rest upon the passive obedience alone to the exclusion of the active this will depend upon whether obedience is employed in the comprehensive sense of including all that christ underwent in his state of humiliation both in obeying and suffering another distinction is made by some between satisfaction and merit in this case satisfaction is employed in a restricted signification it denotes the satisfaction of retributive justice and has respect to the law as penalty thus employed the term is equivalent to atonement merit as antithetic to satisfaction has respect to the law as precept and is founded upon christ's active obedience christ vicariously obeys the law and so vicariously merits for the believer the reward of eternal life respecting this distinction Tariton remarks that the two things are not to be separated from each other we are not to say as some do that the satisfaction is by the passive work of christ alone and the merit is by the active work alone the satisfaction and the merit are not to be thus viewed in isolation each by itself because the benefit in each depends upon the total work of christ for sin cannot be expiated until the law as precept has been perfectly fulfilled nor can a title to eternal life be merited before the guilt of sin has been atoned for meruit ergo satisfaciendo et merendo satisfeciat there is some ambiguity in this distinction also the term merit is often applied to christ's passive obedience as well as to his active the merit of christ's blood is a familiar phrase the mediator was meritorious in reference to the law's penalty as well as to the law's precept footnote owen justification chapter ten endorses the distinction as made by grotius whereas we have said that christ hath procured two things for us freedom from punishment and a reward the ancient church attributes the one of them to his satisfaction the other to his merit edwards adopts it whatever in christ had the nature of satisfaction it was by virtue of the suffering or humiliation in it but whatever had the nature of merit it was by virtue of the obedience or righteousness that was in it redemption works one four hundred and two end footnote end of section three